Welcome to Advaya Talks, a collection of recordings from some of our favourite events and gatherings. Advaya is a global platform for transformative education that explores what it means to be alive today. Looking at how we relate to the world around us, we connect ecology, spirituality and community to inspire inner transformation for outer change. Advaya was started by sisters Ruby and Christabel Reed. To find out more, you can visit us at advaya.co. Jason Hickel is an economic anthropologist and author of Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. In this eye-opening talk, he debunks the belief that GDP growth is equivalent to human progress and discusses the ways in which our emphasis on GDP growth has been responsible for the overconsumption of high-income nations, which has led to total ecological overshoot. He discusses the tyranny of growth that lies at the heart of our economies and puts forward several ideas for a post-growth economy, emphasising the need for a scale-down of our economic activity, which does not have to be at the expense of enhancing human flourishing. Uh, I want to begin with, uh, with a story, uh, maybe appropriate for our setting. And it's a story about Easter Island. So, um, uh, so of course, scholars are still trying to figure out why the, the society on Easter Island collapsed. Uh, putting an end to uh, to the people sort of famed for their construction of towering stone heads. Right? Um, and one very intriguing theory that archaeologists uh, have is that it had to do with the heads themselves. Okay? So basically, somehow, um, uh, people decided that the heads uh, effectively symbolized power and success. Uh, and so different groups on the island began to compete with one another to build uh, more and more stone heads uh, than the other groups. Uh, there ended up being 900 of them, some of them 30 feet tall. I mean, tower, that's, what is that, three stories tall. It's almost unbelievable. Um, but there was a problem, and that is that there was only one quarry on the islands. And so in order to build this incredible amount of heads uh, and move them to different parts of the periphery of the islands, they had to figure out a way to, um, to cut down trees and use them as rollers to move the stones around the islands. Okay? So, and so as they, as they engaged in their sort of um, mad head-building projects, uh, in only a few generations, they managed to, enti to entirely deforest this uh, once verdant uh, island covered in tropical forests. Um, and if you look at pictures of Easter Island today, it basically looks like scrubland. Uh, it looks like someone literally mowed the lawn around the islands, right? Uh, what's interesting is that we assume that is uh, sort of the natural state of the island, but in fact, um, it's the clue to the collapse itself, which is fascinating to me. Um, so, and, and of course, this was, it was strange because the people must have known Right, uh, that things were not going well as they were eating through their own ecosystem. Uh, I mean, after a while, we know that they didn't have enough wood to live in, uh, in their traditional houses anymore, so they had to live in caves. We know that their diet changed dramatically because they used to hunt and forage in the forest, and suddenly those um, species collapsed. Uh, we know that they were also farmers, but because of massive deforestation and the collapse of floral ecosystems, springs on the island themselves began to dry up, and they could no longer irrigate their crops. Uh, and because uh, there were not enough trees to go around, they also couldn't build their boats from which they used to fish. And so slowly, uh, slowly they, they began to die of, of famine, effectively. Um, and the population began to, to decline really dramatically. So, um, and to me, what's, you know, what's really powerful about this story is that uh, it shows us collapse in rapid motion uh, that's all due to effectively a myth. Okay? But it was a myth that was so powerful that despite knowing its madness, the people couldn't resist it. 
Now, it's, it's, it might be easy for us to assume that this is maybe a characteristic of sort of small-scale uh, um, societies, but in fact, that's not at all true. Um, in our own globalized civilization, we too are subject to very powerful myths. And one of those myths is very similar to the myth that led to the demise of Easter Island. So in the same way that Easter Island economics was organized around the principle um, of uh, ever-increasing stone heads, okay? so too our society is, organi is organized around the principle of ever-increasing GDP growth. So um, <clears throat> now, basically, the principle is that GDP must grow and must grow at all costs. So think about it, right? So um, right now, GDP growth is the primary public policy objective of literally every government, almost every government, on the face of the planet. Think about that. And it's held by left and right alike. Okay, so, um, you know, uh, the left and the right uh, may bicker about how to distribute the yields of growth through better wages or public housing or whatever it might be. But on the question of growth itself, they are unanimously united. Uh, so think about the Labour Party up until now, you know, a robust, at least uh, ostensibly robust leftist party has, has historically been very pro-growth. Um, and so they, on, on this issue, there's no daylight between them and the Tories. Okay? Uh, this is how hegemonic the idea of growth is in our society. So um, uh, why must GDP grow? The assumption that we all have is that GDP growth is effectively equivalent to human progress. This is basically what we're told from virtually every uh, media outlet that there is in terms of World, World Bank reports, IMF reports, uh, the world's nations ranked by GDP um, every year, every quarter even, and so on. The idea is that we need growth in order to do important things that we all love, like eradicate poverty and improve people's well-being create jobs and maybe even increase wages. We think that growth is essential to these things. So we, we take the assumption of necessary growth for granted. Right? It seems to us to be normal and natural. And if you ever do stop and question it, then people look at you like you're completely mad. Uh, and if you don't believe me, literally try it and see what your reaction is. It's quite, it's quite curious. It's one of those sort of deeply unquestioned assumptions about our world. So what is GDP? GDP is, in, in sort of very lay terms, it's the measure of all the stuff that we extract and produce and consume in our economy every year, the monetary measure of all that stuff. Um, so another way to put it is that it measures the monetary value of all the resources that we dig up from the earth right, and the human labor that we churn into money. So to the extent that we, we churn nature and humans into money, that is GDP growth. Right? Um, and what's important here is that uh, the principle of growth is that every year we must uh, extract and produce and consume more than we did the year before. It's a flow measure, it's not a stock measure. Uh, and so to grow the economy, we have to, you know, uh, next year, we've got to produce and consume as much as we are this year, plus an increment. Okay. Um, now, what's, what's interesting about this is that this is a relatively recent invention, actually. Um, it was actually, the, the idea of GDP was devised only recently by Simon Kuznets, an American economist, who was asked by Congress in the 1930s to figure out why the Great Depression was going on and how it could be fixed. So he came up with a measure that, um, that uh, basically added up all of the value in the economy every year. So they could figure out where the problem was and, and what they could do to sort of sort it out. Um, and, and of course, the American Congress adopted it. But uh, in his speech to Congress, Kuznets himself gave a warning. And he said, whatever you do, never use GDP as a measure of normal human progress. It will be the end of you, is what he said. And the reason is, because GDP is an odd measure, and he designed it so he should know. It's a measure that, uh, that, that doesn't count social negatives or ecological negatives. So for example, if you cut down a forest and sell the forest for timber, 
GDP goes up. But it doesn't account for the cost of losing that forest as a sink for, car uh, for carbon, or as a, um, a habitat for endangered species, or as a future asset. Right? Um, and the same goes with, say, mountains. If you strip the mountains for coal, then GDP goes up, but it doesn't count the cost of the emissions from the coal, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Uh, so he warned against it. But then something happened, unfortunately. And that was that World War II became a thing. And there were Nazis all around. Uh, and the government of Britain wanted to figure out how they could defeat the Nazis at all costs. And so uh, John Maynard Keynes, famous British economist, um, rocked up on stage and he said, well, we can use GDP okay, uh, as a way of figuring out um, all the resources we have available to fight uh, the, uh, the war effort. Okay? And Cousins was like, wait, don't do this. It's going to be dangerous, you know, for my warning. And he was like, no, we have to, we have to beat the Nazis at all costs. And so even though uh, the GDP uh, includes things that are bad, we need to know how much, um, uh, how much uh, monetary power we have. So let's do that. Um, and so it further entrenched the idea. And then, most importantly, during the Cold War, in the sort of epic battle between the West and the USSR, uh, GDP, but not just GDP, GDP growth itself became an, uh, an indicator for measuring which civilization was best. Okay. So a kind of grand pissing match, if you will, between uh, the big men in, uh, in the sort of world stage. And ever since then, um, because of the way that globalization has worked, this measure has been uh, spread around the world and now is the dominant feature of literally every economic system on the planet in a, in a formal sense. Okay. And it's no wonder that it's so violent if you think about it. GDP was devised as a wartime measure, right? The idea w was a violent intention in the first place, and so it's not surprising that it doesn't pay attention to the consequences of violence. Now let's think about what growth means, okay? I said that you have to have an increment every year to keep the economy afloat. <coughs> Economists say we need about 3% per year. So 3% maybe sounds sort of small to us, actually. Um, and it sounds normal, for sure. I mean, we hear this from our politicians almost every time they open their mouths. This is the kind of growth that we need. It's enshrined in the Sustainable Development Goals, bizarrely. Okay. Um, it seems easy, it seems fine, because we're used to thinking in, uh, in a linear scale. But growth is an exponential curve. It's a compound function. So 3% so growth means doubling a thing every 20 years. So think about that. If you take the global economy in the year 2000, which was not a time of poverty, let's say, right? I mean, right? This is a time of uh, already rampant consumerism in the West. Um, and then imagine doubling uh, that global economy by the year 2020, and then doubling it again from its already doubled state by the year 2040, and then doubling it again and, and, and so on and so forth, right? Until the end of the century when the global economy is 32 times larger than it is at the beginning of the century. That is the trajectory that not only we, we are presently on, but trying to advance, right? This is our objective, um, which is almost, it boggles the mind, actually. Um, if, if, if ancient Egypt, at the beginning of their civilization, of their 3,000-year civilization, um, had one cubic meter of stuff and grew that amount of stuff by, three, by a modest 3% every year, by the end of their civilization, they would, ha they would have enough stuff to fill one billion solar systems, which is, in fact, not a joke. <laughs> um, this gives you a sense for sort of the absurd scale effect of growth. Okay? Now, here's the thing, is that as GDP rises on an exponential curve, then ecological impact rises right along with it. And for some of you, this may seem like common sense. Um, okay? But uh, I'm going to give you a measure. And it's a measure that we, that, that we in ecological um, economics call uh, material footprint. And it basically, it's a single measure that measures 
all of the material stuff that we extract and, uh, and consume from the Earth every year. Okay? So everything from petroleum to plastic, uh, from biomass and forests to fish, uh, um, gold and silver and stone, everything that we consume. If you add all of that stuff up, then right now we're consuming 80 billion tons of stuff per year. Okay? For perspective, the sustainable level of material consumption, they say, ecologists say, is about 50 billion tons of stuff per year. We passed that in the year 2000, and we're now overshooting that boundary by 60% per year. Okay? Um, and uh, according to the models that we have right now, with business as usual, on our present trajectory, we're going to hit 180 billion tons of stuff per year, more than double what we're presently consuming, and three times more than, uh, than the planetary boundary on this. Okay? And again, this is, uh, this is the objective. <laughs> this is where we're headed. So we're living in an age of what we call ecological overshoot. Okay? Um, and the if you're not familiar with that term, the best way to understand it is that um, it means that we're um, extracting uh, and wasting more than the Earth can regenerate or absorb. Okay? So if we were extracting only as much as the Earth could regenerate, because the Earth is a regenerative place, um, and if we were wasting and emitting carbon only to the extent that the atmosphere could reabsorb it safely and our oceans could reabsorb it safely, we would be at what we call a steady state uh, economy. Okay? Um, but instead of being at a steady state, we're in a, a, a phase of ecological overshoot. And we can see the consequences all around us. And I'm sure that uh, if you read the news, you're familiar with them. Okay? We know that um, since 1950, half of the world's tropical forests have, uh, have disappeared. And believe it or not, on our present trajectory, they will be gone by the year 2050, which is incredibly soon. Uh, our grandchildren may not see a, a mature tropical forest. Um, fish stocks are collapsing really rapidly. Um, uh, many of our key fish stocks are down to 1% of their former volume from earlier in the, in the 20th century. Insect populations are collapsing. This is a huge story right now with, uh, with key insect populations across Western Europe down by 75% over only 25 years, due largely to the chemicals that we use in industrial agriculture. Um, the, the broad biodiversity extinction rate right now, um, species are going extinct at more than 1,000 times faster than the background rate before the Industrial Revolution, uh, which some ecologists think is actually more serious than climate change in terms of an existential threat to our civilization. Um, and then, of course, there's climate change itself, um, which I'm sure everyone is aware of. Uh, right now, even with the Paris Agreement in place and the nationally determined contributions that nations have promised, we're headed on a trajectory of three, of three degrees uh, warming by the end of the century, which may not sound like very much. Uh, and of course, this will mean rising seas. But more importantly, the bigger issue for us um, is the prospect of famine. Because as uh, the planet warms, then agricultural yields be begin to decline. And if we're trying to feed uh, a growing human population, um, uh, with declining agricultural yields, uh, this is going to result in, even according to the most conservative estimates by, by um, organizations like the World Bank, mass famine in this century, which will drive uh, only further human displacement and wipe out any gains, crucially, that we, hope to uh, that we hope to make against poverty through the dominance paradigm of growth. Okay. Um, now, what's important about this is that um, in terms of responsibility for this crisis, the hard truth is that virtually all of it is due to overconsumption in a handful of rich nations, like the UK, the US, uh, nations in Western Europe, Australia, and so on. Okay. Um, right now, uh, in, in the average high-income nation, the average person consumes 28 
material tons of stuff per year, okay, on average. In low-income nations of the world, the average is about two tons of stuff per year. So in rich nations, people consume about 14 times more material stuff in that broad category that I just discussed before um, than people do in low-income nations. Okay? If we were to all consume at the level of the average person in the rest of the world, including middle-income nations, then we would be consuming seven uh, um, tons of stuff per year, which is exactly at the planetary boundary. Okay? <coughs> so if we were consuming like everyone else in the rest of the world, there would be no ecological overshoot. In terms of emissions, maybe, but in terms of other kinds of ecological overshoot, no. Um, so this, this again emphasizes the fact that this is down to overconsumption in a few rich nations who have been on a growth trajectory for a very long time and very aggressively. Okay? So if the entire world were to consume as we do in high-income nations, we would need 3.8 Earths to sustain our consumption. Okay? Which is interesting <laughs> because the plan right now is that everyone should be like the West. Everyone should be like high-income nations. This is the development objective. And of course, we don't have uh, the Earths necessary for this, unless, of course, Elon Musk manages to colonize Mars and somehow turn it into an Earth, and then do that three or four times more. Um, and of course, what's important about this also is that this overconsumption has a disproportionate impact on the global South. So just here's one example. Um, uh, the global South suffers losses due to climate change in the region of $600 billion per year, which outstrips the aid budget by a factor of five. Okay. So for every dollar of aid that the North gives to the South, they lose uh, five times more than that <coughs> simply in costs associated with climate change due to historical emissions almost entirely by rich nations. And, and this is sort of the depth of climate injustice. Each year, uh, about 400,000 people die due to climate change-related uh, causes. 98% of those people die in the global south every year. Um, and the vast majority of them uh, are from countries that have contributed the very least to historical missions of anyone on Earth. So the conclusion here is that rich nations need to make dramatic um, reductions in their, uh, in their consumption. Okay? In the region of 75% uh, reductions in material consumption each year and emissions reductions of 12% per year starting in 2015. Um, this is our only uh, roadmap to, um, to sort of living within planetary boundaries. But here's the question. Is it possible to achieve these kinds of reductions in the context of a growing economy? This is literally the million billion dollar question, right? Because remember, um, our objective is growth. Uh, and so how to can our objective also be this massive reduction in consumption, right? Now, in 2012, a number of key reports came out saying, don't worry, everybody. All we need is green growth, right? So we can figure out ways to use public policy and technological innovation to decouple uh, um, material consumption and ecological degradation from growth. So we can keep growing our incomes indefinitely while at the same time reducing our material consumption and our emissions back down the planetary boundaries. Okay? This was their promise to us in 2012, not long ago. Of course, at the time, there was no data that this was, in fact, possible. But since then, fortunately, we do have data. Um, a number of very high-profile models that have been released that explore precisely this question. And the news, time after time after time, is bad. Uh, in fact, literally every scientific study that's been published on this concludes the same thing, and that is that absolute decoupling of resource use from GDP is impossible, um, including the UN only a couple of months ago uh, that came, came to this very strong conclusion that um, that green growth is not a thing. Okay. 
So of course, we're going to need all the technology we can get, all the best public policy we can get. But also, it's not going to be enough. Okay. If growth is incompatible with planetary boundaries, and if um, uh, th then, then, then the conclusion, of course, is that some kind of degrowth is necessary, some kind of reduction in our economic activity. Right? And this is a difficult pill to swallow, and almost nobody is talking about this fact, that we need to, we need to sort of plan a scale down of our, of our, of our aggregate economic activity um, in order to, um, to maintain the basis for our, our own civilization. Right. Now, here's the thing, is that crucially, Whenever I say this, someone's always going out there saying, you're talking about voluntary poverty, you know, hair shirts, uh, misery, hunger, what, what, you know, no one's gonna buy into this agenda. <laughs> um, but here's the thing, degrowth does not mean immiseration, okay? And we know that for these reasons. In the 1970s, the United States of America had a lower poverty rate and higher real wages than it does today, despite a GDP per capita half of what it is presently, right? They were half as rich in aggregate, and yet they were doing better in key human indicators. Can anyone guess why that was? Yeah. Facts on community. What's that? Facts on community sharing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. More even distribution. Distribution. Exactly. It was a more equally, um, a more, a more equitable distribution of the yields of the economy already. Right. Here's another example. Europe, right, has 40% less uh, GDP per capita than the U.S. And yet they beat the US on virtually every measure of what counts. Education, healthcare, life expectancy, happiness, right? Um, you know, espresso, <laughs> plazas, <laughs> et cetera, right? Um, Costa Rica. Costa Rica has uh, better life expectancy than the US um, and higher happiness levels than the US, rivaling even Scandinavian nations, right? With one fifth of the GDP per capita, okay? Because they've invested heavily in uh, in, um, in universal healthcare and education, okay? Um, it's easy to generate um, high levels of human happiness and well-being without any growth at all, simply by redistributing more fairly what we already have, okay? Uh, so this is crucial because growth, in fact, this idea that growth is necessary for us to live good lives is in fact a lie. We know from data after data after data that that's not true, okay? So the question is, how do we get there? How do we manage a kind of economy um, where we're scaling down our economic activity and at the same time maintaining and even enhancing human flourishing. Okay? Uh, um, so I'm going to appeal to your intellect and offer you a couple of ideas that we discuss in sort of ecological economic circles. Um, now remember, the goal here is not simply to get individuals to reduce their material consumption. As noble as that is, it's a, it's a, it's a, a dead end. And the reason is because we all live in a society, uh, in an economy, that is structurally dependent on growth. If it does not grow, it collapses. And if it collapses, then people, uh, then people get hurt and they die, right? Uh, people lose their jobs, they can't pay for food on the table, uh, they end up homeless, et cetera. We, nobody wants this. Um, so we need to liberate ourselves somehow, not just from our own individual consumption, but from the tyranny of growth that lies at the heart of our economy. Okay. Um, how do we get there? We have to think first, intellectually, about why our economy has to grow in the first place. Once we understand why it must grow, we can think about how to change those features of it. Okay. So here's one idea. Um, what if we got rid of GDP as an objective, as a public policy objective? Remember I told, I told you about the problems with it. There are alternative measures out there. One is called the genuine progress indicator, which starts with GDP and then subtracts uh, um, social and ecological negatives. Okay. 
So when politicians are pursuing G, uh, GPI, for example, then they're incentivized to maximize social goods while minimizing ecological bats. Okay? So when you change the thing that we're chasing, you change the behavior of, um, of our politicians. Okay? Um, a second idea is to, um, is to do something about uh, the shareholder value rules that, um, that, uh, that corporations operate under. Okay? So if you take your average local pub, what is their objective? Their objective is to make enough money every year, probably the same amount of money each year, so that they can uh, pay their rents, pay their workers, and buy some food for their family. Okay? That is their objective. Not to take over every pub in the world. But literally, that is the objective, this, this idea of endless growth, of every listed company on the stock market. And the reason is because they have a fiduciary duty to, you know, by law, to maximize shareholder returns, regardless of the ecological and social cost of it. Um, but it's very simple to change these laws. Uh, a few sentences would do the trick. And so we have people working on this already, and we should get involved in that. Um, uh, we've already discussed the, the importance of, of, of a fair distribution of the yields of our economy. And the reason this is important is, um, is because uh, politicians tell us that we need growth to improve people's lives. And, and they literally often say themselves that growth is a substitute for equality. Okay? You will literally hear politicians saying this, and economists. Uh, because it's easier for them to grow the pie and hope that some trickles down than to redistribute what we already have more fairly. Okay? But we can take their little maxim and turn it around. If growth is a substitute for equality, then equality can be a substitute for growth. And we need to insist on that. It used to be that demanding greater equality was kind of this radical left-wing uh, agenda. But in fact, today, it's, it's necessary for our survival on this planet. Right? This is no longer about ideology. Uh, so in a way, we're all revolutionaries now, or we have to be. Um, here's another idea. Decommoditizing basic social goods. Okay. Take the US, for example. Uh, um, in America, people spend immense amounts of their money on, uh, on private health care, because there's no NHS, and on private education, because there's, uh, well, I mean, here too, but there's enormous fees for higher education there. Um, if those goods were decommoditized, then they would be able to spend a lot less money for the exact same quality of life, okay? Mm -hmm. Allowing them to work less, um, earn less, and consume less uh, without any losses to their well-being. Or take London. If the housing stock in London was even half decommoditized, if our rent was half as much, we could work half as much, roughly, uh, and earn half as much, and yet have no loss to our quality of life. Think about that, right? This is the kind of thing we need to be thinking about um, as we move towards a kind of post-growth economy. Um, I'm going to give you uh, another idea, and that is um, uh, a shorter working week. This is important because of what we call the productivity trap. Inbuilt-in capitalism is the imperative to all, for corporations to always increase labor productivity. Okay? As they do so, then uh, they need fewer workers, and so it increases unemployment. And so politicians have to generate more growth to create more jobs to reabsorb those unemployed people. Okay? If we had a shorter working week and something like a job guarantee, we could redistribute uh, necessary labor so all of us have access to the incomes we need to survive uh, without having to generate more growth to create more jobs and reabsorb unemployed people. Okay? Working less is crucial to saving the planet. <laughs> uh, bizarrely, tell your boss that. Um, but here's the, here's the last idea I have for you. And I'm sure that Helena will talk more about this. Um, and that is that one of the reasons our economy has to grow is because of debt. Our economy is shot through with debt. Uh, and, and because debt comes with interest, and interest is a compound function, all of us have to work and produce more and more every year simply to pay back our debts and so that we can keep sort of 
um, stability. Okay. Uh, so if we had something like citizens' debt audits, um, deciding which debts don't need to be repaid anymore because people are rich enough already, um, you know, which has been done in some, in some cities, in some localities, uh, then we could rid uh, a, lot of our, a lot of the debt out of our economy. Okay. Um, but, in, but, but, it, but it wouldn't actually be enough because our currency itself is based on debt. And this is a crucial thing that most people don't understand. When you go to a bank and take out a loan, you think that the bank is giving you money from its, uh, its vault, its reserves. But in fact, it's not. When you, when you get a loan, a bank gives you a loan, then it invents that money out of thin air, literally out of thin air. Uh, and so as it creates money, um, as it uh, um, gives you a loan, it creates new money. And that money is intrinsically debt. 97% right? of the money floating around in our economy right now is debt in this manner. Okay? So, uh, which is one reason why we're sort of a, we, we have this structural addiction to growth. So with alternative currency systems that are debt-free, public money or positive money, um, it, it will remove, we hope, some of this uh, sort of growth imperative from our economy. I'm going to stop. Um, but I want to say, some, I, I want to say one, last, uh, one last thing. And that is that I, I really think that we have to be careful to not fool ourselves. It's easy for us to talk about moving towards a post-growth economy um, uh, without confronting the obvious elephant in the room. And that is that, um, that is that this kind of economy that I'm discussing and that Helen will talk about is fundamentally incompatible with capitalism. Okay. Uh, and that's difficult for us to get our minds around because we're so used to taking capitalism for granted. Right? But when was the last time we shied away from, from innovation? Okay? For example, I mean, uh, take smartphones and computers and cars. When was the last time we said, this is the best smartphone that will ever be invented and we should never try to improve on it? Right? Never, of course. Why then do we say this, uh, the same thing about capitalism? That somehow this is the best system that we'll ever have and we should never try to improve it. The argument that we need to be making is that it's time for us to evolve past capitalism to something better. This is not about hair shirts. This is not about self-imposed limits and voluntary poverty. This is about a better way of being human, a better way of living in community, a better way of interacting with the, with the intimate other organisms in our world. Uh, um, what we have ahead of us is something richer, something more intimate, something uh, more loving, and something better. We need to be making that argument every chance that we get. Um, so I'll hand over to Helena now. You've been listening to Advaya Talks. If you liked what you heard, consider exploring our online courses with the leading minds of our time at advaya.co.